be together. Okay, I'll have a bit of a chat about the um, the uh, men's leadership uh, group yesterday as well in this sermon. Let's open up, uh, in, sorry, with Genesis chapter 39, and we'll just read the first three uh, verses. Brother Praveen's already read the whole chapter, so we'll be working our way through this chapter today, which is the third sermon in the series on the life of Joseph. So I hope uh, so far you've been blessed by that. And today we're looking at this particular episode in Joseph's life. So Genesis chapter 39, verse 1. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll ask for his blessing upon this sermon today. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your precious word. We thank you that we can trust it perfectly, that it is perfect in every way. And Lord, we pray that you would feed us and nourish us through it today. We pray that through it our faith would be strengthened and that you would use me as an instrument in your hands, simply, Father, teaching and telling that which you want us to hear. So we pray that you bless us today. We pray that our hearts would be open to your leading, to your teaching. We pray that your spirit will be working within our hearts, guiding us in your ways. And once again, we thank you for everything we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. In his name we pray. Amen. So yesterday we had a, a lead, our first leadership uh, meeting for the year. And uh, by the way, all men are, are, um, are welcome to that. You know, don't, don't have to be a member. You don't have to be, it's not a special group. It's every man. So the idea behind that particular group or that ministry is to help equip us to be better leaders in our homes, in the church and in this world. So um, we had a blessing uh, yesterday with the number of men that were there. And we looked at um, the, the letter to Philemon from the Apostle Paul. And so we spoke about this letter. We, we worked our way through that particular letter and what Paul the Apostle was doing was trying to help reconcile two people that were at odds one with another. Onesimus was a servant who would run away. He had caused some, some issues for Philemon and now Paul was appealing uh, as a brother to Philemon who was, a, who was a pastor of a church, by the way. He had a church in his own home. And Paul's... Um, told Philemon essentially that Onesimus had gotten saved through him in the meantime and that he was now a brother and to count him now as a brother, not just a servant, but to receive him back, to forgive him all of his debt, no longer see him as a servant or a slave, but to see him now as an equal, as a brother, more than just another person. So the idea or the topic that we spoke about was when do you get involved from a leadership position, when do you get involved in helping to reconcile other people's problems? So Paul essentially jumped in the middle of that, um, that, that argument or that problem or that breakdown in that relationship and said, I'm beseeching you to do this, this is why. And he sort of reminded Philemon about you know, some of the things that he had done for him. And he reminded him about all the sins that he'd been forgiven as well. And so... We spoke about some of the challenges that may come, and I'm not sure if you've uh, ever noticed this, but sometimes when you seek to do the right thing, you don't end up getting rewarded for it. Is that, is, have you seen that before? I'm sure you have. So oftentimes you might seek to go out of your way to help someone, and sometimes the whole thing just backfires on you. And that happens quite regularly. When you do the right thing, or when you're trying to follow the Lord in something, there's often not a reward in this world, there's often people telling you off about what you've done, even though from God's perspective, you've done the right thing. And so what we see in Joseph's life here is essentially the same thing. Joseph has only ever done right so far. He's never done anything wrong. All he's shown himself is to be a man of simple faith and honesty. And because he's honest and because he has faith, people just keep attacking him. People keep taking, trying to take advantage of him. And when he does something right, he gets attacked for it. So we're going to look at that issue today. And so being a peacemaker, as we, we looked at yesterday, comes with risks. Doing the right thing always comes with risks. But you know what? We may not get the benefit now. 
we may not receive the reward or the applause from people uh, in this world, but isn't it wonderful to get the applause from God? Isn't it a wonderful thing that we, we're knowing we're doing the right thing and we're pleasing the one who bought us with his own blood? That is the one who we seek to please. And if we keep our eyes on him and seek to please him alone, then we do well with our walk and we find joy in that relationship we have with him because that relationship is the most important thing we have in this world. Nothing else compares. And so we see in verse 1, and Joseph was brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites who had brought him down thither. So due to the treachery of his own brothers who had conspired, first of all, to kill him, then they were sort of convinced, or oh, let's just throw him into a ditch and work out what to do with him later. Then while they were working out what to do with him, okay, the Midianites came along, found him in a hole, and said, oh, look at this guy over here. He's in a hole. Let's, uh, let's pull him out, and we'll sell him to the Ishmaelites, and they'll drag him, you know, they'll sell him as well. So uh, he was given from the, by the Midianites to the Ishmaelites for money, and then he was brought all the way down to Egypt, and he was sold for a prophet and he was finding himself not a very good place you see the ishmaelites were traders they were trading in spices in goods in clothing and those types of things and then what ended up happening was that they were also trading in people people have been traded for a very long time if you if you haven't realized in these days slavery was a quite a common thing and a long time after that, in Jesus' day, the Romans were, had, built, had built up their empire essentially through slavery. A third of Rome was estimated to be slaves. The Egyptians built up their um, pyramids through slaves. And so slavery has been a, a, a thing for a very, very long time. And so unfortunately, Joseph has now been caught up in that thing and he's been sold for a prophet to an Egyptian officer, someone who was working or, was, or answered directly to Pharaoh in Egypt. And so what we can tell from this particular thing is that he was working for a man of considerable wealth. The man who bought him was someone of high standing in his society, someone who was recognized, who, who had uh, other servants, and he was well-to-do. So Joseph now finds himself the chattel or the, uh, or the property of someone else. So what do you do? What do you do? Do you try to escape? Do you run? Do you rebel? Well, Joseph didn't do that. Joseph simply started working to the best of his ability. Joseph had now lost his freedom. He lost his family. The father that loved him and adored him couldn't see him anymore and his mother as well. He was in a foreign land with people who worshipped other gods. He was a slave, essentially, who had no rights at all for himself. But there's one thing he hadn't lost. He hadn't lost his God. Or should I say his God didn't lose him? He wasn't lost by his God. You see, God is not in the habit of losing anyone. When you're found of God and when you're with God, when God claims you as his own, there is something you can guarantee about that. God will never, ever lose you. And when Jesus was praying to his father, he said, all that thou hast given me, I have not lost one. I have kept them all. And the only exception was Judas, who was lost from the beginning anyway. He just, and he, Jesus says that Judas was chosen even though he was a devil. So Jesus does not lose one of the people that are under his care or responsibility. And Joseph was not lost. The Lord was with him. Regardless of where he might be, God was with him in his circumstances. So verse 2 then says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he, pro and he was a prosperous man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now, we don't know what length of time transpired between verse 1 and verse 2. I mean, how long does it take to become a prosperous man yourself when you're a servant or when you're a slave? But he must have worked and, and, and caught the eye of uh, Potiphar, and Potiphar's given, now given him more and more and more responsibilities. He, he's put him in a higher and a higher position in his home. And so he sees the prosperity of what Joseph is doing, 
And he says, that might be a guy I could actually use in a, in a higher position in my home. The indication here is that God was with Joseph, blessing him, even though he was a servant or a slave. And Joseph's life was blessed because God had not abandoned him. And there's an important lesson here for us that we can take away in that the picture of Joseph being in a foreign land, in a, in a, in a country that didn't believe in, in God, okay, that had a multiplicity of other gods, um, people that spoke essentially a foreign language, had different customs, of being away from his, from his family, is a picture of us here. You see, this is not our home, the Bible says. The Bible says we are now in a foreign land. If you are a believer this morning, the Bible says you are a pilgrim and a stranger in this world. Now, hang on, see, you might say, Bang, but I was born here. Yeah, it doesn't make, but you were born again. You were born again. So your, your new identity now has broken you away from this world. We no longer are associated with this world. In fact, the Bible says we are so disconnected from this world that the Bible says that we have been now called as ambassadors to the world, to this world. Well, an ambassador doesn't belong in the country that he's working in, correct? That's not his country or her country. They are there for a work. They are there to represent another country, correct? So we are so, by God's design, by God's decree we are so disconnected from this world that god doesn't see us connected to this world anymore and in fact we should we would do well if we don't see ourselves too connected to this world because this world is will one day be judged completely and so if you are associated with this world the bible says god's wrath will come down one day and you'll be judged along with the world but this is the blessing we have in christ is that we are now disconnected from ownership of this world and we've been connected to heaven we are now heavenly citizens and so we are so joseph becomes a picture of someone who's in a place where he doesn't really belong not supposed to be there he's there but he's he's got a job to do while he's there and he's representing god there and that's what we've been called to do we may live in a, a culture where we're surrounded by ignorance of who God is. We may even be surrounded by people that are antagonistic or hateful towards the gospel message or about Christianity. Maybe they've got some notion about what they've heard, about what Christians are like from what they've seen on TV or, or some other place, and they've got this preconception about what Christians are like. People do that all the time. They make assumptions about what everyone's like based on the few people that they've either met or what they've heard on YouTube or TV or something else. We may be surrounded by these types of people, but regardless of what age or what place we find ourselves in this world, the Bible says we are here for a reason now. If you've been saved, you've been bought for a purpose. And God will not lose you, regardless if you are in the deepest, darkest jungles of whatever forest or jungle you may be, God has a purpose for you and he wants to use you to glorify himself. You are his child now. And everything he does, and everything we do, God can cause to prosper if we simply live by faith and not by sight. You know, there are some people in some churches, in fact, a growing number of churches, who look at this type of verse where it says he was a prosperous man and that he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian, and they'll teach you that if you're a believer, that you should be assured of wealth, health, and prosperity. Have you heard that wonderful doctrine? It's awesome. Yeah, fantastic. Um, but if you're a believer, and if you have faith, then God will give you whatever, whatever you want, whatever your heart's desire is. And I remember watch, having the displeasure of watching a particular sermon by a particular preacher, I won't name who, um, but his initials are J-O, um, And he was talking about how, you know, he'd go for a, he went, for, I think it was for a walk with his wife down the street one day, and they'd always go for a walk every day. And he saw this beautiful mansion. And he prayed to God that he would have that mansion. 
And he kept on praying and eventually God gave it to him. And he was using that illustration to tell everyone, I see, if you pray for that, if you pray for your heart's desire, God will eventually give it to you. Because he got it. Along with his Ferraris and Mercedes and everything else that he's got there. Meanwhile, he's fleecing them of all their money at the same time. But there are some people who look at this doctrine and they'll say, oh, look, it's actually a, it's a, uh, it's a teaching us that we can have perfect wealth, perfect health and perfect prosperity. If you're a believer, then God promises you that through this. Yeah, but you know what? I've got a problem with that. Well, that tells me that the apostles had no faith. Because they all lived in poverty after, after the Lord was with them. They gave up everything, including their own lives. The Apostle Paul lost his head. He gave up, he gave up a life of being in a privileged position as he could have been one of the leaders in the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. He said he gave up all that. He said he counted it all as dung, rubbish, just for the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. Did he live his life in, uh, in perfect wealth, health and prosperity? I'll, I'll guarantee you he didn't. And then I wonder about all the missionaries that, that have given up their jobs, where God has called them to a foreign country, and they, they live their lives serving and sharing the gospel. What happened to those guys? No. What happened to the slaughter of the thousands upon thousands of Christians over the ages who simply by professing Christ were slaughtered like animals? What happened to them? Not enough faith? Why do Christians suffer more than other, other people in this world? Why are they more persecuted? Not enough faith? Because of doctrines bogus. You might even ask yourself, well, hang on a sec, but if God was with Joseph, why did he allow him to get sold as a slave in the first place? Did he allow him to get sold as a slave so he could be rich as a slave? Was it to make him wealthy that he allowed his brothers to sell him into slavery? No, of course not. And God blesses as he chooses. But I'll tell you something, this is teaching us, that the wealth of this world is nothing compared to the spiritual wealth and blessing that comes from Christ. That, in, in essence, is what the Bible teaches us. That this world and everything in it, you could own the whole world. Jesus actually says, you can own the whole world and lose your soul. That means everything that's owned in this world is not worth a soul. Not worth one soul. Not worth your soul. So why is this whole wealth business and health business and prosperity business so prevalent in the preaching of churches today? It's because it appeals to the flesh. And the flesh has a strong hold on people. But the scriptures teach us that there is nothing in this world compared to what we have in Christ. The hope of glory, the inheritance of the saints. According to the Apostle Paul, the love of Christ is more precious than anything you can ever own in this world. Regardless of what riches or wealth or even health that you may think is valuable. Scriptures even tell us that we are even counted as sheep for the slaughter. But if you have Christ, you have it all. Turn with me to Romans 8.35 for a moment. Romans 8.35. And listen to Paul's plea for us here to understand is that the love of Christ is the most precious thing that we can have. And he's saying here, who can separate us from this love? Romans 8.35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake, for his sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, 
nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can separate us from his love. And that's the bottom line here. That's the important thing to understand. We may be naked and have zero. We may be in hunger. It doesn't separate us from his love. It doesn't mean you've been separated from his love. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, for a moment. Because the Apostle Paul didn't just want us to understand that this love is that thing which is the most important to us, but that we would discover the depths of that love and what it's connected to. The Lord does not promise us health, wealth, and prosperity, but he did promise us eternal life, glory, and inheritance with the saints. So Ephesians 1.18 says, that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. You see, he wants us to understand the depths of that hope that we have in Christ. He wants us to look forward to that day when he will take us home to be with himself, that the wealth and all the blessings are coming. But we have him. If you have Christ, you have all his blessings now. But one day we will see with our eyes that thing which we hope for by faith. A life in Christ will bring you a difference in your life. Will bring you a difference in quality, in heart, in mind, and in will. People of faith often have longer lifespans. They often have better health because they're not caught up in all the vices that the world is caught up with. They normally don't drink themselves to oblivion like other people do. They're not normally caught up in drug addictions and those types of things. They don't normally engage in things that are dangerous and detrimental to their life. They are normally more wealthy because they don't go gambling all their money away. They're more wise and prudent because they're following scriptural principles that teach about honesty and integrity. And they're generally more happy. The testimony of believers all around the world consistently tells the same story that a life with Christ after a person got saved is very, very different to a life before. I mean, it's been a blessing to hear the testimonies of people uh, just over the last few weeks where Christ has made a huge difference in their lives. It warms my heart to see Christ is on the throne and changing people's hearts. And so it encourages us when we hear that someone has gone from darkness to light. They've gone from, from a fear and anger and hatred and bitterness. They've gone to joy and peace and love. See, Christ will change your heart and he'll change your mind. What's interesting is that um, they did a recent study and they found, and this is not necessarily like a, uh, a thing that you can, you can sort of hang your hat on, but it says a recent study finds people who regularly attend services, religious services, live approximately four years longer than average. How do they do that? Well, they actually ended up getting looking through obituaries and they looked for all the people whose obituaries had something to do, said they were involved in church, right? This is done in America, so it's 99% church, right? It's not really other religions. But it says the ones who wrote something about God and that they were active for God in their obituary, they pulled those aside, they looked at their lifespans and they found that those people lived about four years longer than everyone else. The Lord does bless. But there's a principle called sowing and reaping. The Lord says that you will reap what you sow. And the Lord gives us rules and guidelines in his word that will lead you to a more prosperous life, that will lead you to a more healthy life. Um, but that is not a good indicator to work out whether you believe in God or not. Because if that becomes the indicator, then as I've said, 
some of the most faithful people in this world don't believe at all. They've given up everything. And sometimes they don't have the, the best of health either. In fact, the scriptures often show us that people of faith have often been the victims of others. They've willingly forgone the riches of this world for a life following after Christ. Look at Paul, look at the apostles, look at all the prophets in the Old Testament, what happened to them. The Bible says they were slaughtered, they were killed, they were sawn in half, they had their heads chopped off, they had every time that they came and, did, and spoke God's word and people didn't want to hear that word, then the, the, there was an inevitability about their outcome. The Lord indeed may call you to a life of poverty. He may call you to be a missionary one day. He must. I want you to go and serve in Africa somewhere. I want you to, to leave everything behind. I want you to leave your, your, your comfortable job, your, your home, and I want you to travel out there, and you're going to be at risk. But I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And that's more important than living a life of comfort. A genuine faith will be noticeable to people around you, and this is what happened to Joseph. He was a man of such integrity, honesty, and faith in God that you can't help but see God in him. And so what he does prospers at his hand because God is working through him. Look at verse 3. It says, And his master, in Genesis 39, And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. So that his master saw that the Lord was with him. It doesn't simply mean that he says, oh, this God believes in, this person believes in God. No, no, look at the word Lord in your Bibles. It should be capital L-O-R-D, which means that's where God's name is. And so his master, Potiphar, who was a believer in the Egyptian gods, no doubt, looked at, at, at Joseph and knew the name of his God. He knew who Joseph believed in, that he believed in Jehovah. And so he says, oh, wow, Jehovah's really blessing this guy. Look at the way he is. Look how he's different to all, all my other servants. Potiphar knew who Joseph's God was because Joseph did not keep it a secret. He didn't imagine it, the name. He didn't guess the name. Now he knew the name because Joseph would have told him that name. And we are living witnesses of jesus christ but this can only be true if people know who you believe in if you're a nice person all round, but no one ever knows that you are a follower of christ how are you a witness for him can you be a witness for christ if no one ever knows who you believe in the answer is no to be a witness for Christ means that people know that you believe in Christ and then your life shows them what he's like. But if no one ever knows or finds out who you believe in, they just think, oh, that, well, look at that, you know, look at that uh, Frank over there. Such a nice guy. Look at him. He's always helping people. He's always doing good stuff. He's always, you know what? He's a wonderful atheist, isn't he? What else would they think? unless I speak up. We are living witnesses for Christ, but they will never know about Christ unless they hear his name from our lips. And the moment you speak his name in this world, they will begin to look more closely at you and me. That's a good thing. It is a good thing. Because the moment they begin to look at you and me more closely is the moment that they will see more of him. Or they will see something else. You see, we can either cause people to see the grace and the love of God in our lives, or we can be the root cause of them blaspheming God. And that is a terrible thing. You see, there are some Christians who live their lives in such a way that they cause unbelievers to blaspheme God. 
turn with it to Romans chapter 2, verse 21, because it's not just new to our age. Romans chapter 2, verse 21. There is a warning here about living a life that's not consistent with what we speak. And Paul says, Thou therefore, which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, does thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, does thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, does thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. Now, he's specifically pointing at the Jews here, and he's saying the Gentiles are looking at your lives and they're blaspheming God because you're doing the opposite of what you're saying. People pick up on hypocrisy quite quickly, don't they? It doesn't take much. You say you've got to be honest, and in the next moment you're doing something dishonest. That they will pick that up and register that against your name in a moment. The question is, are we willing to live lives of integrity? And I would dare say that some of us are even afraid to um, speak the name of Christ where we work or among our family because we are maybe afraid that they might look at us more closely. And they might find out the hypocrisy that's already existing. And we don't have the confidence to overcome that hypocrisy. Remember, we have been called to share the light and be the light in this world. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Because Joseph, by faith, lived a life that was obvious to Potiphar and those people around him. So we have been called to live by faith, to steer away from hypocrisy. Jesus warned his disciples over and over again about the, the, about the yeast of the Pharisees, right? Which is hypocrisy. Because the Pharisees were the ones who were saying, oh, this is what you have to do. And Jesus says to his disciples, do what they tell you to do, but don't do what they do because they're hypocrites. But the Bible tells us, and Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 14, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And there are two things for that to happen. One, you need to have wonderful works, right? And two, they need to know who your father is. And he tells us here that you don't light a candle and he's made us all candles and you don't put it hidden. In fact, our lives are meant to be held up high in a way that everyone actually can see us. That there is no ambiguity about who we believe in and, and what we and what we stand for. We aren't meant to be hidden. You don't put something under under a cover, under a basket, um, to hide it because you're worried about what people are going to look at it like. So Potiphar was so impressed with Joseph's work, integrity, and life that he promoted him to the highest place in his household. Why? Because he trusted Joseph. He saw he was trustworthy and he saw his integrity. He saw that what he put his hand to worked out well. And he thought this guy is, is worth promoting. And so in verse 4 in Genesis 39, it says, And Joseph found grace in his sight and he served him and he made him an overseer over his house. And all that he had, he put in his hand. So Joseph's life caused Potiphar to place greater and greater trust in him. Now consider how far Joseph had come from being sold as a slave with no rights now to being put as the overseer of this guy's place. And this guy was directly responsible to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Imagine for a moment the integrity 
and the, the work ethic, the honesty that Joseph must have demonstrated to put that much trust in him. You know, lives of integrity are pretty rare in this world. But the world is starved of integrity. It's completely starved of it. People don't see integrity. So everyone's suspicious about other everyone else. Everyone is um, uh, uh, paranoid about people. You can't trust other people. We live in a world where hypocrisy is rife, where people don't see integrity, where they, can't, where they don't see a person who says, I live in this particular way, I believe this particular thing, and then see that person walking in that way each and every day of their lives. But we've been called to be people of integrity. People who live the way what we say, we do. Look at verse 5 and 6. And it came to pass from that time that he had made him an overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he had left, and he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he knew naught. Uh, not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well-favoured. So for Joseph's sake, God blessed his work. And as a result, Potiphar was blessed. Joseph was well-favoured and blessed. And so this is a, Joseph becomes a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ for us again. In that we've been blessed because we're in the same household now. But he has been found faithful in God, all of God's house. And he has been put in charge of all of God's house. And because he is faithful, we get blessed. But there's also a message in there for us. In that our lives, if we live lives of integrity and faith, and people see that in us, they become blessed through us. They get to see Jesus Christ's love, his peace, the joy that comes from knowing him. They see all the wonderful characteristics of him flowing through us. We can be a blessing to them, and because God blesses us, we can bless them. You wonder what Potiphar's life was like having Joseph managing his house? Well, it tells you here. It says he didn't care. He didn't know what, even what was going on. He didn't care. All he, all he knew was... They got, they got the food ready for him. He'd just go and eat and he'd enjoy his life. This guy was living large because Joseph was looking after all his stuff. This fellow had no fear. All he knew was, look at the wonderful meal they're preparing for me for lunch today. What's for, what's for dinner? And this guy's got, I'm assuming he's got lands and assets. He's got servants all over the place. And, and all he's worried about is not how things are going. What about this and what about that? And you know, All he's worried about is what's for dinner tonight? Really love the, uh, the shish kebab that you made for me last time. But let me ask you, do you have that peace? Do we have that peace? Potiphar can have that peace, not even a believer, because he trusted Joseph with everything he had. Let me ask you, what are you fearing today? Who's overseeing your life? Is it you? Are you still running around like a headless chook? Worrying about this is not going to go right. And what happens if that doesn't go right? Or what happens if this doesn't go right? Or are you living in perfect peace, having Jesus overseeing your life? Let me ask you this morning, does Potiphar, or did Potiphar trust Joseph more than you trust Jesus? My prayer is that you can have that peace that Potiphar had. He trusted Joseph so much, didn't care about everything else. All he knew that Joseph was taking care of things. And if we believe that Jesus is taking care of things in our life, we should have perfect peace as well. And we can be then conduits of blessings to other people. Let's look at verse 7. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused. And said unto his master's wife, behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house. And he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. 
There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And so when approached by Potiphar's wife, Joseph tells her plainly and truthfully that he can't do such a thing because it would have wronged and betrayed the trust of the man who put all his trust in him. How can I betray that type of trust when he's put all his trust in me? He's trusted me with everything in, in his house. There's nothing he's holding back. How can I do this to him? How can I betray his trust? And he says, not only that, he says that this thing is a sin against God. It's betraying God's trust. And so he would have been wrong on two levels, huh? on two levels. And sin always breaks things in two levels. Okay. It destroys the relationship this way with each other. Because if I wrong you, I've hurt you, right? If I steal something from you, have I done something against you that has caused you pain and suffering? The answer is yes, right? Have I wronged you? The answer is yes. But at the same time, I wronged the one who gave the law in the first place. I wrong him. Because if I was made in his image, then every time I break the law of the image maker, then I mar that image even more. So rather than being honest and giving, I'm breaking his perfect image in me. And so sin is always at a corporate level or human level wrong against God as well. In this case, committing adultery was a betrayal of the trust of someone who'd put trust in him, but was a sin against God as well. And God is the ultimate lawgiver. He has given us all the, when he created this universe, he created all the physical laws of this universe, all the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology, and everything runs like clockwork. Huh? But he also gave moral laws. So he gave laws to his creatures that he's created to live by. And people think they can actually break the laws without actually suffering any type of consequences to them. As if it's all okay. You know, and if God wants me to, you know, not do something, I, and I feel like doing it, I should be able to do it. And that's where the rebellion of man came in. God gives laws that are right and just. Man breaks all those laws because he's selfish and weak. But people are fools if they think that God is mocked. Because there are consequences to pay by not abiding by God's laws. Some may cause you physical death, but breaking God's moral laws also causes you spiritual and eternal death. And Joseph provides us the pattern of what to do when temptation comes along. When temptation comes knocking, Joseph gives us the perfect response. We're going to see that now. Look at verse 10. It says, and it came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day. So this is not wasn't just once. This is ongoing here, okay? That he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house and to do his business and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. Joseph saw the advances of Potiphar's wife as something to be avoided at all costs. He saw that she was constantly looking for opportunities to do that. And so what does he do? He avoids her. He keeps away from her. In fact, he says he doesn't even talk with her, which would have riled her up even more. He refuses to listen to her, to be around her. And so when she has an opportunity that she finds him in the house by himself, she takes a hold of him. He's not approaching or responding in any way. So she grabs a hold of his thing, thinking that she may, um, you know, drag him towards her and he'll finally give in. And his reaction is a great picture of what to do if sin tries to take a hold of you. Sin may come knocking every now and then, but there may be a time when sin tries to take a hold of you. 
It's got you in a corner somewhere. And what he, the way he responds is perfect. He runs. He runs and he leaves his coat behind even. He gets out of his coat, what, the one she's holding, and he runs. You know, the, the Bible teaches us the way we should respond to the devil and to sin. It tells us over and over again. The Bible says we are not to run away from the devil. We are not to be afraid of him. We are to resist him in the faith and then he will flee from us. But there is something that's repeated over and over again in the Bible with respect to sin. And it doesn't say to resist it. It doesn't say to argue against it. It says to flee. There are four places. If you look up the word flee in the New Testament, there are four places. Only four places where the word flee is used. And every one of those has to do with sin. I'll read them out to you. You can write these down. You don't have to look them up. You don't have to turn to them just yet. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, for he has committed fornication sin against his own body. 1 Corinthians 10.14 says, wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy 6.11 says, but thou, O man, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, peace, and meekness. Now, what's that talking about? Flee, uh, flee these things. Well, it was describing pride and the love of money. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee also youthful lusts, but follow after righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Joseph fled temptation. Joseph fled the opportunity to sin. That's the right response. Because temptation can't be reasoned with. You can't negotiate with it. You can't buy it or pay it off. It's pointless to enter into discussion with it. It simply must be left behind, even if it means your dignity is lost. The moment you begin playing around with sin or with temptation, or you're foolish enough to think that you've got some control over this thing, that you can sort of have it around and it's not going to affect you, is the moment you've already lost. You don't test the effectiveness of a landmine, right? Do you know what a landmine is, don't you? Right. You don't test the effectiveness of a landmine by putting your big toe just to touch it. Huh? And then you think, ah, sick. it's not that bad. Let me try it again. And you touch it a little bit more. And then you think, look at that. See, I'm pretty good. I'm very light on my feet. And then you go and do it the third time, and the third time you don't exist. You have no feet left. That's like sin. You might think, oh, look, I just, just touched my big toe there. Oh. I can control that. Let me just try that again a little bit more. And the third time it has you in and it takes you by the neck. And before you know it, you're in a very deep and dark place. So my advice to everyone is do not play around with temptation. Remember this also, the temptation is not the sin. But it doesn't mean that we should be playing around with temptation because it does not take it's not a very long road between the temptation and the sin okay and oftentimes it begins just in here or in here and if we have it going on in here and here it doesn't take that long to head out here Joseph gives us the perfect way to deal with temptation, and that's to run. You know, the devil couldn't get Joseph to fall in his way or along using his temptation, so now he does something to test his faith. You see, you know when you've tried really hard to do something for the Lord and you do it, Right? And then something comes up really bad after that. The first thing that's going to come to mind is, I didn't deserve that. I deserved a reward for what I did, didn't I? 
I mean, God, I resisted that temptation. Why is something bad happening to me now? And so the devil then plays this game with us, that we think that we should be rewarded or applauded for when we do something right. And if something goes wrong after that, the devil says, see, God doesn't even care about you. And that's the exact game he was playing with Joseph now. Because Joseph went from a state of being in a prosperous position, in a, as an overseer, as someone who was resisting daily the temptations that were coming his way. And then when things got really sort of, you know, hairy, he lets go of his jacket and he, and he flees and runs away. And now what's going to happen to him? He's not going to be rewarded for that, is he? In fact, the opposite is going to happen. So look at verse 13. It says, And it came to pass when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth, that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in an Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. And it came to pass when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. And she spake unto him according to his words, saying, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought, heard that one before, which thou hast brought unto us, came in unto me to mock me. And it came to pass as I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled out. And it came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did they did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. Surprise, surprise. The person who was the instigator, the person who was in the wrong, makes up a story to implicate someone else instead. Never be surprised about the deceptive, deceptiveness of people. Jesus actually warns us as the children of light that, that the children of this world are more wise. And when he speaks about that manner, he doesn't say, he's not talking about a heavenly wisdom here. He's speaking about the wisdom to manipulate, the wisdom to be deceptive, the wisdom to make up a story so someone else comes out looking bad and you get out of it. And so that's what happens here. Do not be surprised about the deceptiveness of people. Don't be shocked. Don't be in awe because it is rife. When they can't get their own way, people often seek the destruction of those who try to stop them getting their own way. Potiphar's wife thought, if I can't have him, then I'm going to make him pay for making me feel like a fool. Despite Joseph's faithfulness and obedience to the Lord, he was now about to be betrayed again. His brothers did it the first time to him and lied to their own father about it. Now Potiphar's wife will seek to destroy him and lie to her own husband about it. You see a pattern here? Don't expect the world to applaud when you do the right thing. Don't expect the world to give you a pat on the back or reward you because you are faithful to the Lord. If it shows them up, they may want your demise. And Jesus experienced the very same thing. You see, when Jesus was going about healing people, feeding people, preaching the kingdom of God, he says to, to the Pharisees and those who are watching him, but you, now you seek to kill me because I've told you the truth. And was what, what he said true? Yeah, 100%. Because it came to pass. They managed to kill him. And the only reason they wanted to kill him is because the truth that he spoke, the life that he lived, showed them up. So don't ever be, when you do the right thing, expect it. Expect deception. Expect your words to be twisted. Expect you to be made a fool of or to be mocked. Expect even people who have been shown up in some way to actually come after you. And if they don't, fantastic. Keep going anyway. After all that Joseph had done for Potiphar, after all the promotions and blessings that Potiphar had received through Joseph, who would Potiphar believe? His wife. And so in verse 20 we find, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound 
and he was there in the prison. Well, there's our answer. Didn't take him long. <laughs> He's going to believe his wife before he believes Joseph. So Joseph was sent to prison. But God knew all about this long before it ever had happened. And he allowed it for a reason. Because you see, even in prison, God was with Joseph. And his integrity and faith in the Lord became then a testimony to them. And so we see in verse 21 to 23, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. How's that? And who, whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him and that which he did, and the Lord made it to prosper. So how's that? The same thing happens again. He's gone from a position of a slave, and his integrity, his honesty, becomes very obvious to people. And so what, what happened in Potiphar's place, now has happened in a prison, where the prisoner now is in charge of the prisoners. And the, the keeper of the prison doesn't care anymore. Joseph's looking after everything. This guy's as honest as the day. This guy's doing everything right. I've got nothing to worry about. What's for dinner tonight? You know, in this, we don't see any complaint from Joseph. You know, he did everything right, right. He did. He worked hard. He he was a witness for the Lord. He shared, you know, who who his who his God was. Um, he didn't complain. He did everything right, but then he was betrayed and finds himself in a prison. Now, I know the flesh would have risen up and said, Lord, what did I do to deserve this? I did everything right. Now I'm finding myself in a prison cell. Did he complain? No. Finds himself in a prison. What does he do? The same thing he was doing before. Step by step. Faith by faith, day by day. He simply followed the Lord in what he told him to do. He simply lived by faith. He didn't expect the reward. He simply allowed the Lord to work through him. And this is what we've been called to do. We may live our lives in this world in a way where we feel we deserve a reward for doing the right thing. But the Bible says don't expect it. There is one who is watching what we do. And if we bring a smile to his face, that's a wonderful thing. And one day he will show us everything we've done. And that, that all those good works the Bible says that we will then throw down and back at his feet. And we'll say it wasn't because of me, it was only because of you. Because you, you prepared all those works. I simply said okay. Joseph didn't complain. Don't look for, for a reward when you're simply doing the right thing. Romans 12.1, if you turn with me there, which is, is our last verse we're reading. Romans 12.1 tells us not to expect the reward. It tells us to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And so the Apostle Paul here is beseeching. That word is pleading, right? He pleads with believers. And he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's only reasonable. It's only reasonable because he's bought us with the blood of his own son. It's only reasonable because he took us from being rebellious and sinful creatures and has now transformed us and actually brought us into his own kingdom and called us his children. It's only reasonable now that we live lives that are living sacrifices to him. Everything we have is his. Our bodies are his, our minds are his, our hearts are his. He deserves every part of us. And so the reasonable thing to do is to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. The reward we have already received in Jesus Christ. 
We have more than enough than we can ever count, than we could ever uh, enjoy. Now live for him with every strength that he gives you, with every grace that he pours upon you and avoid sin at all costs. Don't let anything become, get between you and him. And so the, the story of Joseph finishes the same way it starts. He sold into slavery and the Bible says that God was with him. He's in a prison now and the Bible says that God is with him. So regardless of where you are this morning, regardless of what state you're in, what past you have, what situation you're going through at the, at the moment, Christ is with you if you belong to him. If you belong to him, if he is your Lord, if he is your saviour, if he has bought you by his blood, if you've received him as your Lord and saviour, then you belong to him. And there is nothing you can fear. There is nothing you need to fear, sorry. You may experience all the suffering of this world. It doesn't mean that he has disowned you or that he has abandoned you because he promises he never will. He knows what you're enduring. He knows what suffering you, you are going through, but you know what? He's been through a whole lot of it himself. He knows exactly what you're feeling. So let us endure the suffering for him because if we can suffer for his sake, for him, for doing the right thing, then what a joy it is, the Bible says. What a joy it is to be counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. I pray that's our, that's our understanding today. I pray that God has opened up our eyes to that type of belief and faith this morning. Joseph is a wonderful example for us. Be truthful. Be faithful. Endure the sufferings. But with everything, live for Jesus Christ. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you.